0: From New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, you're listening to Check This Out, a new literary series where we dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna. I am thrilled to be able to share these conversations with you over the next few weeks. Today on the show, John Manuel Arias, author of the new novel, Where There Was Fire. John Manuel Arias is a queer Costa Rican American poet and writer who has lived in the U.S. and in Costa Rica where, as he reports, he shared a house with his grandmother and four ghosts. His debut novel, Where There Was Fire, burst onto the scene last August and has racked up all kinds of accolades since then. Where There Was Fire is set in Costa Rica and follows several generations of women in one family, mothers and daughters, alternating between their lives in the 1960s and the 1990s. The novel focuses on one major event that reverberates and haunts each generation, a fire that burned down a banana plantation, a fire in which a father goes missing. This single, enormous, extraordinary event tears the family apart and gives rise to ghosts that keep the characters pushing for answers. Who started the fire? What happened to a missing husband? To a dead mother? Where There Was Fire is a gorgeous book about love and secrets, reconciliation and redemption, all focused around the biggest question of all, what is the price of a banana? John Manuel Arias, thank you for being on Check This Out today.
1: Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you. New Hampshire, hello. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first time here in the state.
0: So I want to start off this conversation by asking you to talk a little bit about this history, this question of what is the cost of a banana and these banana republics um, that have really come up and grown out around Chiquita banana, as an example. And we're not talking about this fancy store where you buy your pressed jeans and khakis, right? We're talking about the historical cost of a banana and banana republics. So can you set the scene for us and tell us about that history, please?
1: So, one, it is Bananas that that company still has that name, has kept it for so long. But Banana Republics are smaller countries developing monocrop society, and they're easily manipulated uh, by foreign interests. And that um, originally included Chiquita Bananas. And Costa Rica is the first Banana Republic, actually. So... The people suffered on slave-like plantations, uh, manipulated government elections, and complete domination. And that's what I wanted to portray with the American Fruit Company. They have these countries accrue debt, and they get land, they plant bananas, and then they essentially plant people that will live their entire lives feeding this beast that feeds upon them.
0: I love this. They plant people. So what does that mean?
1: So that means that these companies value the fruit over human lives. And so people are born for generations on these plantations. These companies own corner stores, general stores, liquor stores, cantinas, and they'll pay these workers in their own currency. And so that's what they will charge. It's essentially slave labor.
0: And the workers at the plantations are working crazy long hours. They're giving their Absolutely. entire lives to the growth and the harvest of these bananas. So tell me about sure. the harvest, uh, harvesting of a banana.
1: Of course. So harvesting bananas is backbreaking labor. You are hacking constantly. You are carrying and lugging constantly. And you are consumed by the day. And there are many also sprayers that spray pesticides. And these pesticides are incredibly toxic to uh, its people and to the water supply. It seeps in and it affects for generations. So it is just all consumingly awful.
0: And the people working on these plantations are not paid well.
1: No, not at all. So like I said a little earlier, these uh, companies, what they used to do was they had their own currency. So they would have their own Chiquita dollars. And they could only spend these Chiquita dollars on local cantinas, general stores, et cetera, et cetera. So they were indentured laborers, essentially slaves.
0: Um, And you talk about in the book a lot about the great divide between the people who are working in the fields and then the white-collared, first they're the Americans who are basically in these fenced-off, walled-off, immaculate houses, but then there are also some white-collar sort of local workers as well. So there are real, um, you know, divides between the, the different levels, the segments of workers. Can you tell us about that and how you, how you sort of explore that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, gringos are very one-note, and they uh, segregate themselves from these brown people who are lower class, and they, all, they want the amenities of home. So they have these suburban homes, they have air conditioning, they have imported goods, cornflakes, right? Uh, Because they miss cornflakes so much, they can't eat the local diet of rice and beans. (laughs) And they keep themselves separated. Uh, And that's where they run the plantation from. So they are fenced off, they are walled off, and they're ruling these little fiefdoms. Let's call them fiefdoms, right? And yeah, it is... The the more you learn of this history, the more sort of absurd it gets.
0: Yeah. And then, so we have the segregation between the gringos and then the locals who are working, right? Um, Who are in the plantation. But also there's segregation between the people who come from, um, you know, the area around there, right? We have sort of people who are paid to keep laborers in line, (laughs) right? The muscle. And then we also have the people who are actually, you know, slinging machetes and chopping bananas exactly. So can you talk a little bit about those the you know the differences within the local people as well that are working there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the main character's father is the head corporate lawyer for this company and so he is allowed access to this white zone. Right? He is allowed a status that is almost equal to the Americans there on the plantation. But there is still that racial divide and there will always be that racial divide. And especially with the lower class workers, they will never really interact unless they have a doctor that is testing them, as in the novel.
0: Yeah, I love that. So now that we know a little bit about the history of the Banana Republics and, you know, the Chiquita Banana Company, we dive into the book itself. And we talk about the American Fruit Company, which is the company that you set up in where there was fire. Um, And you have the family uh, is, you know, that's where they're working. That's where their lives have been destroyed, basically by this company. So can you tell us what the characters in the book do for the American Fruit Company?
1: Of course. So the American Fruit Company is a stand-in for Chiquita Bananas, or Dull Fruit. They are It's this amalgamation of these two evil forces, and it is the nucleus of these people's lives. So the protagonist's father, when he was not disappeared, he was the head corporate lawyer for them. And he was also a secret queller of revolts. And these companies very much kept tabs on people who organized against them, union leaders, syndicalists, and they were eradicated. And so there's a secret job, and also the protagonist's husband is one of the laborers. So he hacks bananas for a living to provide for his family, and he spends time at the cantinas as well in order to uh, inoculate himself over the next, for the next day.
0: So you really show us the different levels and the types of workers that are in the American Fruit Company and what they can be doing.
1: Yeah, I thought it was really important to tackle it from all aspects. So what happens when you are privileged by Americans and what happens when you are seen as just labor?
0: Just labor and expendable.
1: And expendable, absolutely. There's a book by Carmen Lira. She's the founder of the Communist Party in Costa Rica, and she has a book called Bananas and Men. And she says in her epigraph, I put bananas before men because that's how it is on the plantations.
0: So uh, one of the things that I was really impressed about when, uh, when I was looking into this book, I read that you actually started writing this book while you were in America, but you are Costa Rican American, and you felt like the book wasn't really in, you know, you, you, the feeling, the spirit of the book was not on the pages. And so you went to Costa Rica to live there with your grandmother so you could really feel it and you could get, right, sort of the blood into the pages and the feeling. And I love that you did that. Can you tell us about that journey?
1: Uh, So after college, I finished here in New York City, and I didn't have a job. I didn't have an apartment, and I had no prospects. So I said, what am I going to do? I've been working on this novel for a bit. I'm going to move to Costa Rica. I'm going to live with my grandmother, who this novel is basically uh, inspired by. And I had to live with her because I had to hear her stories. And I had to hear her stories every day. That's the only way that I could access the story. And it was so important to be there with her at her kitchen table to learn about our family history, to learn about the blood of Costa Rican history as well. So I can't and couldn't really write this book without it being quote unquote authentic.
0: So this book is very personal for you.
1: Yeah, to everyone in my family as well. It is a particular generation. So a lot of my family that I know now have not really made the cut. (laughs) But there are many of my grandmother's friends who inspired the book. She herself inspired the book. And I would watch these people for four years in the way that they interacted with each other. And there was this beauty of friendship, of sisterhood, of motherhood. And it was very particular. It's geographically and generationally different, which I thought was important to portray. Yeah.
0: So you spent four years living there to write this book.
1: Absolutely. And I always joke that Uh, I lived with 300 years of women because it was my grandmother and my three great aunts and they were each 80 years old. So it was 300 years of stories and 300 years of idiosyncrasies and of affection and love and admiration. It was really, it's a once in a lifetime and also a very healing thing to be around your matrilineal heritage.
0: I love that. We're going to talk more about matrilineal heritage in just a moment. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is John Manuel Arias, and we are talking about his debut novel, Where There Was Fire. So, John, we were just talking about the women, the 300 years of family history that are in this book. Um, on every page, there are ghosts. Can you talk to me about ghosts in your family and in this book?
1: Yeah, so while I lived in my grandmother's house, there were ghosts, and they particularly liked to annoy me. And I don't believe that ghosts are here to frighten us. They are here to just annoy us. Because what else are you going to do when you're dead? You're bored. And that's what the thing about these ghosts are, too. They're bored. They're here to remind the living that there's really no difference between the two states. And that's what the ghosts were doing while I was there. They would wake me up in the middle of the night. You could see them in those like old school convicts TVs. You see the shadows flashing by. And so it's a little freaky, but mostly it just got on my nerves.
0: I love that. So you took these ghosts that you were living with while you were with your grandmother, while you were writing this book, and you put ghosts into your novel, Where There Was Fire. Can you talk about the role of ghosts in the book?
1: So ghosts in magical realism, which is the literary tradition that I write in is different than horror ghosts. So ghosts in magical realism are here to help us uncover. They're here to remind us of things that we don't even really know. They are forgotten history and not only forgotten history, but buried history. So they're coming up through the earth of this buriedness, in order to get us to the truth. And sometimes that truth is that uh, death isn't so bad and sometimes ghosts are there to let us know that a plantation burned and that there's something underneath that.
0: I love that. Uh, John, I would love to hear your voice and how you set up this novel. Could you read a little for us?
1: Absolutely. It all began on a banana plantation owned by the American Fruit Company. From its cantina emerged a man as drunk as the father he was named after. He stumbled out into a mud-dirt road and swayed in the imaginary breeze only drunken men feel. He gripped something invisible, a bottle, a machete, and lumbered along La Guardia Railroad. The rails glittered in the moonlight, hypnotizing him. Over his slurred thoughts, a cool, rum-sweet voice persuaded him along, past wilting hibiscus bushes, past muggers and mongrels and Mother Superior past shrieking ghosts tied tightly to the track like damsels in distress. This voice beckoned the man back to his home, a fragile little affluent neighborhood by the name of Barrio Ávila. There, his family and neighbors were still stuck in dreams, oblivious to his pilgrimage.
0: Just beautiful. So here we have the opening of the novel, and you've introduced us to the American Fruit Company. And the American Fruit Company dominates the main family that's in this book, Uh, and you have each sort of generation, each player works at a different level of this company. Can you talk about those three roles and, and the American Fruit Company in the novel?
1: Absolutely. The protagonist's father worked as the head corporate lawyer, and he also had a secret position there that allowed him to have a lot of money and Teresa, the protagonist, and her mother, Amarga, are used to this affluent lifestyle. But when he disappears, they fall into financial ruin. And Teresa meets this young, very handsome man who begins working on the banana plantation, but as a hacker, and he hacks bananas, and he is poor. And that tortures Amarga, Teresa's mother, but Teresa doesn't care about this class shift. And so there is constantly these class dynamics fighting against each other, all within the nucleus of this company
0: yeah so you really set up right we have the big american fruit company right as this big hulking player in this book but then we also have the family and we see both of them sort of fighting against each other and fighting for a place in costa rica and on your pages how in your head did you think about these two hulking themes the one being the american fruit company and the other being the family that is affected by it that is living through this company
1: family is incredibly important in costa rica in many societies, but in Costa Rica, it is the uh, foundation. It's the bedrock of society. It's a very conservative idea. And this American Fruit Company is also an overwhelming bedrock of this community. And so to have these two dynamics, this corporate and this familial, fighting against each other, but also one uh, being a shadow of the other, was a really interesting dynamic. And I wanted to see how that light of the family played with that shadow of the company.
0: That's amazing. And also you introduced very early that play between light and dark. Of course, we have violence and we have murder and death. Can you talk about violence in the novel?
1: I wanted to challenge Costa Rica's idea as the Switzerland of Central America, as uh, an outside tourist destination where there is this myth of peace, but within bubbling beneath the surface is violence against women. And femicide is a very big issue that is not uh, always addressed and that feminists and women are uh, always addressing and always protesting about. And I thought that was really important to the novel to dispel this myth with the personal, and that there is violence in this country, and it is important to highlight it.
0: I love that you brought up the women, because really this book tracks the story of the family through the women. And you start off in the very early pages, and you write that uh, women pick up the pieces. And you write, Men are the devils, and women are the saints. Every woman is born with a sharp machete inside her heart. She must learn to wield it to cut off men's tails. There's this violence, right? There's this matriarch at the center. There's a lot to unpack in that sentence. Can you talk to us about that?
1: So this line comes from the protagonist's grandmother, born in the late 1800s, who is this sage, who is this witch. But it's tinged with internalized misogyny that women are put on this earth to sanctify men. But she's identifying something very interesting, right? Which is this matrilineal power. And I thought it was very interesting for this character to instill this sense of machismo, but also strength. This contradictory human being and this contradictory statement.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's great. Because also, we're really trying to, um right, we're looking at these ghosts of the tales, the ghosts of the, you know, pieces of the men, pieces of the family that's lost, um, and this idea that women are holding it together. And I love that. And And I felt like I could picture you talking to your grandmother about this. And she's telling you across the table, it was the women that held us together when these, you know, big fruit companies came and invaded our country.
1: Yeah. And that's an unfortunate pressure in Costa Rican society and across the world, of course, but that women are tasked with keeping everything together. That's not always fair. It's usually not fair. They have to box themselves into the perfect mother, the perfect wife, and they have to keep everything stable. And that's a lot of pressure. And men need to take more of that pressure.
0: I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, John Manuel Arias. We're talking about his brand new novel, Where There Was Fire. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is John Manuel Arias, and we are talking about his brand new debut novel, Where There Was Fire. This is a book set in Costa Rica, and it is about the cost of a banana and the price that a family pays as these gigantic American corporations come into Costa Rica and take over so that we can buy a banana for 20 cents at Trader Joe's. So, John, um, I want to talk a little bit more about this um, exploitative neocolonialism, right, this idea that these big American companies are coming into Costa Rica and taking over um, and they're not being held accountable for their actions. How did you first find out about that?
1: I have a degree in Latin American studies, and so I didn't really get into the meat of it until I went to college. And learning the history of the United Fruit Company, which is today Chiquita, radicalized me in a very itself violent way within myself. And I knew because I wanted to be a writer, I knew I had to write about this in some way. And learning the history of Costa Rica and its interwovenness with the United Fruit Company was a no-brainer for me. And then I learned about toxic pesticides that these companies used and how it affected the health and well-being of workers and the ramifications and how it affected their families, usually the women.
0: Do you remember a moment or a specific text that you read when, you, when something clicked inside of you and you realized, like, this is what destroyed my country?
1: I watched this documentary called Bananas! Exclamation Point. It is about this particular pesticide called nemagon that was used by Dole Fruit in the 1960s and 70s that actually sterilized 30,000 Costa Ricans. And when it was shown at Cannes, the Dole Fruit Company got wind of it. Their lawyers sued Cannes and it was not shown again. So it also shows the power of these lawyers, the power of these companies, which was a little bit of a paranoia about me publishing this novel. Uh, That's why I had to sort of rebrand as the American Fruit Company, because the prospect of getting sued, the prospect of all of these things is real. When I went back to Costa Rica and I was telling everyone that I was writing about a particular pesticide, a particular Moment in banana history. They said, oh, they're going to put you in jail. It's known to us that the overreaching, the overarching power of these companies. But here it means something completely different. But I'm bringing not baggage, but a little bit of anxiety. But I knew that this was an incredibly important story to tell. I had to. And that's the only way that I know how to do this particular aspect of activism, is put it on the page and convert one person, one reader at a time.
0: Amazing. You're this one guy standing up against these big multinational corporations, all that money, all those lawyers, and you're telling this story.
1: Yeah, my great-grandfather, actually, listening to my grandmother's stories, he was a union leader against the United Fruit Company in the 30s. So he was a syndicalist and a communist, and he fought against this company. And during the Civil War, because he was a communist, he was hunted down, and he had to escape into a cave on the outskirts of San Jose. And my great-grandmother would bring him food. She would sneak away in the darkness and bring him food. Years later, he came back, and my grandmother says that when she saw him, she didn't recognize him. His beard was down to his chest, and he was skeletal. But that is the price that one pays. So hopefully I pay less of a price, but it is in my bloodstream, I guess, to fight against this. And I think that is a role that I am more than willing to take on.
0: Well, this is why we read. This is why you're, you write. Right. So that you can tell these stories so that we can sit here and have the privilege of talking about this and making sure that people hear us, that the price of a banana is steep. Right. And it goes through generations of families. And in particular, in pertaining to this book, the price is steep for families in Costa Rica. So um, let's go back to this chemical, Nemegon. In the book, you talk about it. It's used on the plantations and it has sterilized most of the men that are working, that are harvesting the bananas. They have no idea this is happening. Um, And it it rattles them. Right. It terrifies them. And one of the doctors actually has this sinister moment where he tells one of the workers that, um, you know, his children can't be his because he's sterile. Oh, my God, is that heartbreaking. Can you talk about that and, and how you came to that?
1: So I wanted to incorporate the very real nature of nemagon. Nemegon existed and fruit companies used it and they knew that it was sterilizing the workers. And this American doctor shows up in order to, hopefully this is not a spoiler, but he goes to cover it up so that this company can save itself from litigation And as he's doing so, he's testing these workers. There is one particular worker that bucks at his Americanness, his authority as this Yale-educated American doctor. And who is this Costa Rican laborer to frighten me, to threaten me? And he does the ultimate violence, which is attacking another man's masculinity. And masculinity is very important in Costa Rica. Machismo is very woven in. And so to tell a man that they're sterile in the narrative, it says it's worse than telling him he's a woman. And it is this, the the novel is so much about toxic chemicals, but also toxic masculinity. And so what happens when those toxic masculine forces, uh, divided by race, divided by class, divided by country, what happens when that, what explosion results
0: yeah, very, very powerful in the book and the explosions that we see. Um, literally, you open with the fire, right? Page one, and, and you read that to us beautifully. Um, but this leads me to my next question, which is really, how do we move forward, right? We know that we've had this horrible company, this conglomerate come down. It's destroyed this family, three generations, that you've showed us. How do they move forward? How do they repair?
1: It's so difficult because so many of the characters... Like us in real life, the past clings onto us, and it weighs us down, and it brings us back. And a lot of the characters are unable to reconcile the past, and that's fair. But there are key characters who want to understand it in order to move forward as a bomb, discovering and uncovering as a way to find themselves. And once they do, they can move forward. The title of the book is a proverb in Costa Rica. Donde hubo fuego, cenizas quedan. Where there was fire, ashes remain. And these ashes are evidence that people existed, that lives existed, even though this fire, even though these greater powers that be, tried to erase it. And for many of the characters, they're looking at the ashes scattered in the dirt and trying to piece things back together.
0: Just beautiful. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. And my guest today is John Manuel Arias, and we are talking about his debut novel, Where There Was Fire. This book is so powerful. Again, we are back in Costa Rica with the American Fruit Company and Ghosts and Ashes. And we were just talking about ashes and what is buried beneath them. And um, we find a very powerful scene um, towards the end of the book where one of the main characters actually digs out a necklace (laughs) that she finds, right? Literally finds the past in the ashes and tries to move forward. Can you talk about the symbol there and, and that push, that need to keep going even in the face of horrific tragedy?
1: That was actually a very difficult scene to write. There's so much desperation in this character's heart. And after a sort of vision, a suggestion, she realizes that this could be the truth. And she runs to this plantation while it's raining and there's this patch of dry earth as if it was protected by divinity. And she digs and she digs and she digs and she yanks out this necklace that belonged to another character important to her. And it's as black as the dirt. And it's as hot as the night it had burned. It is the evidence that she needed to reconcile a disappearance as a death.
0: Yeah, because you have two generations of father figures, the male, the patriarchs, disappear. And the women are left. And, and we, the reader, I, the reader, am thinking, what happened? Because you make it as plausible that they survived and, you know, are hiding in a cave <laughs> yes. uh, or that they were actually killed and they were murdered. So can you talk about that, right? The, these hanging over these ghosts and you're not sure if they're dead or alive.
1: I thought it was really important to put the reader in the place of the women and their reaction to the disappearance of men and the violence that they caused beforehand and what it means that they are now disappeared. Do some of the women miss them? Do some, are some of the women glad that they're gone? There is this scene where the protagonist's mother realizes that she and her daughter are stuck with each other. She hates her daughter because of her own self-hatred and in the narrative it says, and she thinks that when men are gone, everyone else dies it's this really tragic reaction to being stuck with your daughter, to not having a husband anymore. And it's, it's very intense. So allowing that vacuum of men and seeing how women react in a community way, how they hold each other, but also how they react to that vacuum, I thought was really important to highlight. Because men also take up a lot of space. So what happens when they're not taking up that space? What are those dynamics like?
0: Another dynamic that you explore just beautifully is from generation to generation, the matriarchs decide what information to share. They're not going to tell their daughters or grandchildren everything, right? They hold back. But we, the reader, get to see more. So we know some of what's being held back. How did you think about those decisions and what, what is carried forward?
1: Costa Rica is a society of secrets because it is Catholic, and Catholic is a culture of secrets. And there is this pressure for families outside of the home to be perfect, and for histories to be as perfect as possible, to be as pristine. So you hide those skeletons, you bury that dirt under the rug, in order to protect what you think deserves protecting. And sometimes that is the reputation of someone who came before you, or one's own reputation. And so what happens when these people keep secrets, but also what happens when this company keeps secrets? Who gets to keep the secrets, and why do they get to do it?
0: It's a great question. I mean, I think we all ask this every day of our lives too. How much are we going to tell? What am I going to hold back? Maybe we don't use the word secret, but we certainly don't tell every detail, right? When we tell a story. So you put that on the page. And
1: I put that on the page because that is the way, like you just said, people are. It's important to have these characters as human as possible because they are. And they screw up. Even with the best intentions, they just mess up. And that's how I am. That's how you are. That's how everyone is. And that's what I think makes these... Characters sort of come alive is how flawed they are.
0: So in this book, you really lay out um, a uh, an amazing view into the horrific um, effects of the Chiquita, or Dole, banana companies on Costa Rica. You lay bare the horrors that they, you know, brought down upon Costa Ricans. And now we are looking back on that. How do you want us to remember that and talk about that going forward?
1: I was asked this question actually. And it was asked, what do you want readers to walk away with? Rage. I want readers to be angry that this happened to this family. And when they look at our actual history, that it happened to actual people. And to numb your teeth with rage and think about a way to tell the person next to you to maybe fight against it in your own way and help seek justice for those people who are still alive, who were affected. I think that's really, really, really important. So to walk away with the beauty of the book, I tried to make it as beautiful as possible, as ornate and attractive, but to walk away with that teeth numbing rage, like I did.
0: Wow, (laughs) it just blew me away, right, This, this rage. When you look at the cost of a banana when you're in a supermarket and it's less than a dollar, what do you think about that price tag?
1: I don't even think about it anymore. I am so desensitized, I think, um, to what it actually means. It's really hard to be a part of a system. We live in a capitalist society that obviously preys upon other societies, So my iPhone, its battery is exploiting a community in another country. The ceramic in my hand, the clothing that I wear, all of it is tied into subjugation of developing countries. And it's hard to be complicit, to know this information, but still be complicit because it's impossible, in my view, to avoid it. And that's really hard. So I look at these bananas and I I know the labor that goes into them. I know the history that has gone into this delicious golden fruit. But I still buy it because I still need a banana.
0: You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum. And today, my guest is John Manuel Arias. We're talking about his new debut novel, Where There Was Fire. And we're going to take a short break. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum, and you are listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is John Manuel Arias, and we are talking about his debut novel, Where There Was Fire. John, we are talking about Costa Rica. We are talking about the Banana Republic's The Cost of a Banana, and uh, we are talking about ghosts. (laughs) ghosts and more ghosts. You in your bio say that you have grown up with ghosts. Can you talk to us about the importance of ghosts in
1: your life? So the ghosts surface most in my grandmother's house in Costa Rica. And so anyone who I have ever met and they have any sort of sensitivity are a little bit frightened by those contents of this house. And in my grandmother's house, four people died. And four people were born, including my father. And to have four births and four deaths opens this portal. It is an incredible energy. And what I realized is that the, this energy wasn't surrounding the house. It was surrounding my grandmother. Because it was her father who died, her husband who died, her mother, and her brother. Within five meters of each other at different times and these four children including my father were born in the same bed not 20 meters away from that so it's really fascinating to see my grandmother amble throughout the house and to know that this intense energy is maybe emitting from her but what happened is that these ghosts annoyed me (laughs) all they did was bother me They would wake me up in the middle of the night. I would wake up cold because the sheets had been pulled off my bed and folded perfectly on the floor. Or I would see them at the end of my bed and lamps fall. My aunt says recently that she and her partner were asleep in bed and in the darkness they heard two glasses clink together as if they were cheers. And this is just the thing that happens in this house. (laughs) So it's a little intense, but I never felt threatened.
0: So, of course, they're in the book, right? Because this book is so personal and there's so many pieces of you, including the ghosts. We we also have forces of nature. There's a fire and there's a massive storm. And these all come together. And I felt like the embodiment of this was then these gigantic frogs, (laughs) It was biblical proportions, right? We've got fire, <laughs> rain, frogs. Can you talk about the frogs?
1: Sure. The, um, the cane toad is a really interesting animal. So it is an apex predator, which is really funny to think of an amphibian as an apex predator. It is gigantic, and it eats anything it can see. But it's also toxic. So predators don't prey upon it. And it's called a cane toad because it stocks plantations of sugarcane.
0: When you say gigantic, I mean, how big?
1: So cane toads, um, they're uh, one of the largest amphibians or uh, toads or frogs. And they're about as big as my stretched out hand. Wow. They're large. They're huge. They're bigger than bullfrogs. And so you can imagine this hideous, inflating, uh, warty monster stalking plantations at night, eating pests that threaten crops, and is also toxic. So how does this toad become a metaphor for this poison that is protecting crops, that is toxic to man? And I thought that was this really interesting parallel. And it shows up, this cane toad appears to characters, and it threatens them. But it also reveals the truth.
0: Yeah. I I love that you have the toads in there every time I saw them, right? I mean, we have bananas, toads, ghosts.
1: And they're very intense, actually. If you listen to their song, if you listen to their croaking, it sounds sounds demonic. And you hear it in the middle of the night, and it is as if the devil is singing. It is very scary.
0: It's part of why you needed to be in Costa Rica to write these pages, right? You needed to hear them so you could put them in the page for us.
1: Yeah, if I wasn't there, I wouldn't have heard that sound. I wouldn't have been frightened in the night. And that I don't think that ever would have come up.
0: Woven into the novel are these sort of um, dispatches that come from the American Fruit Company that the doctor sends or the chairman of the board sends to talk about Nemagon, this horrific pesticide that's used on the bananas that is sterilizing the um, you know the workers on the plantation. And they're actually presented as typed up letters. They're in different font. They're separate from the rest of the book. How did you think about adding? these into the novel?
1: There's a wonderful book that came out of Duke University Press called Banana Wars, and it handles holistically the history of bananas in Latin America, economically, politically. And within those pages is an account by this American anthropologist who went to Costa Rica, who was living on this banana plantation, uh, living with the workers, studying them, writing about them, So once these workers had become comfortable with him, a foreman said, oh, I have a box of something that might interest you. And the anthropologist opens this box and there are a hundred years of United Fruit Company memos. And you have orders of assassinations. You have tabs. You have uh, influencing local elections and it is in black and white And it is in these people's voices. It is evidence. And I thought that was so important to have in the novel, that you have it from the horse's mouth. What is happening here? And also, I didn't want to saturate the narrative, because the narrative is about Costa Ricans. It's about Costa Rican lives and Costa Rican culture. I didn't want to dilute it with the talking about Americans and i wanted it to be from the horse's mouth so i interspersed it with these memos where these men who think that no one else is listening are confessing to crimes and there it is for the characters to discover that they're not crazy that they that these things really did happen wow it's bananas
0: <laughs> this book is fiction but it is so close to reality, that it is terrifying. You know, the more I hear you talking, the more I hear that it's based in truth. Just makes me love this book even more because it is opening my eyes, right, to things that I'm not thinking about every day and we should be thinking about and we should be talking about. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is John Manuel Adias and we are talking about his debut novel, Where There Was Fire. So... John, uh, every bio that I read about you says you are a queer Costa Rican American poet and writer. And yet in the novel, we only see one very brief queer interlude, right? We see Hector very briefly, and then he suffers this horrific death. So I wanted to ask why.
1: As a queer author, queerness is woven into the book. So, and what is queerness? It is a critique of toxic masculinity and machismo. It is feminism. And it's not just queer characters, but even in the undercurrent with the women, there is this connection that sometimes is sapphic. And there is the character at the end who is... So concerned and so interested in his matrilineal heritage and the vacuum that it leaves inside him, that what is femininity to him? What is femininity to his gender? And so all aspects of the book, I think, from what I can see and what I tried to do, is queer.
0: I'm guessing there are probably lots of reasons people might look at this book and think that they should ban it in some parts of America. Has this come up at all? Do you know if this book is banned anywhere?
1: No, not at all. I don't think uh, as many people have read it as possible for it to be as scandalous to be banned. But hopefully soon. Hopefully, why not, right? Um, this is a-, a book that is banned by conservatives. It means that it's important means that it's revealing something that shatters their idea of a perfect country. And I want that. I wanted to do that from the very beginning. I want young people, I want high schoolers to access this book and to radicalize them. I think that is so important because I read Edwidge Danticat, I read Toni Morrison when I was that age, Zora Neale Hurston, and these texts radicalized me. And that is so, so important to start early. Why not?
0: (laughs) So there's a lot of Spanish in this book. You were in Costa Rica when you were writing this. Obviously, you're writing in English. How do the two languages play against each other as you're writing, as you're thinking about these characters?
1: So it's funny because I wasn't thinking about them fighting against each other. So I knew that I was writing a book set in Costa Rica with Costa Rican characters but it just happens to be written in English because that is where my mastery is. I cannot write at this level in Spanish. And so there are upside down exclamation points and upside down question marks in order to indicate to the reader that this is happening in Spanish. And there are just some words as well that seems as if they're crudely translated because they work better for the narrative and the metaphor so for example in the united states we call them a bunch of bananas in spanish it's a hand of bananas and so how does that sort of crude translation work into a really cool metaphor so these languages are helping each other more so than they're fighting each other i think
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is John Manuel Arias, and we are talking about his debut novel, Where There Was Fire. John, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about writing process, the writing of this novel, and being an author in general. So you write poetry and prose. right? Can you talk about how you switch between the two and how you see both of them as a writer?
1: Sure. They definitely influence each other, but mostly it is the poetry that influences the prose. So I love above all, you know, you can have a bad plot, you can have unlikable characters, you can have a very confusing book, but if the lines are good, you've got me for the whole time. And that's really what I wanted as well. I wanted to have a book that was undeniably beautiful on the page and poetry very luckily i came to it very early in my career so around 18 or 19 i began hanging out with poets and i said oh you all are super cool and i love the way that you approach language the way that you approach syllables and beats and the sonic potential of language and that's what i really wanted to imbue on those pages
0: so how do you write then if you're thinking right line by line and by these beats, but with a novel, you have a whole plot you have to get through. So how do you balance those?
1: Totally. So I had to become an outliner. I am a novelist that outlines <laughs> and I, st- you know, I stick to the outline until it doesn't work and that's fine. So the, the outline, I'm not completely married to it, but I need that skeleton because a novel is a body. So you have the skeleton to keep it upright. You have the organs of the prose. You have that cellular level of the lines and the syllables and the sounds. So I just need the entire picture, the entire body in order to write my books.
0: You are very good at social media. Your Instagram profile is amazing. It is super fun. Can you talk about how do you see social media, you know, as a part of your writing life?
1: So it's funny, I actually think I'm very bad at social media, but I think I'm told otherwise. And uh, I guess one of the things that I'm known for, I've created a meme out of myself, are these Martha Stewart edited photos of her holding my book? Because <laughs> I love Martha Stewart. I think she's super cool and she's super fun. Uh, she is the original influencer. And what would it be like to see her holding my book? And so I'm honestly waiting for a cease and desist from her lawyers, which I will then frame in my house. But it has become this meme and people associate Martha Stewart with me. When she came out with the Sports Illustrated issue, people were sending me that link at Aiden in the morning. So, I mean, I guess branding is really important on social media. And if it's absurd, then absurd is a brand.
0: But most writers are so scared of it, right? We don't want to be on social media. And you have overcome that.
1: It's, it's a really fun thing. If you treat it as if you're talking to your friends, if you're just tweeting or posting for your friends, someone's going to think you're funny outside of that. And I love comedy. I love being funny or laughing. I think laughing is the most important thing for me. And also with the book, I tried to imbue that as well is that lightheartedness, is that little bit of sarcastic absurdity, which I guess I live in my daily life on social media.
0: (laughs) So this is your debut novel. What have you learned as you've gone out into the world
1: with this book? Oh, man, what have I learned? (sighs) Ah, everything. And a lot of things that I didn't want to learn, especially about this industry. This is a really difficult industry. It is very... uh, I've learned that it's very hostile towards queer Latin American writers. It's hostile towards someone like me and a lot of people who are my friends as well. I mean, it is the way that it is.
0: Can you, would you mind sharing with us how you learned that it's hostile towards you? I'm sorry to hear that. Sure.
1: Uh, When I was querying agents, I had an agent get back to me and she said, I didn't know that Costa Rica had a civil war. And I don't think readers will either. So I'm going to pass. It is that tiny microaggression that because I'm coming from a literary tradition and a culture that is unknown to a white audience, because she was talking about the white gaze, which any author of color is fighting constantly against. And so to have it like a AFC company memo, it is in black and white and it is an admittance of white supremacy is difficult. I had film agents tell me that they wish that my novel had more of an American entry point that they couldn't sell it because it didn't have an American entry point. And so stories about Latin America, about Central America, about Costa Rica are only important when seen from an American perspective. And that has been super hard, but I've fought against it. And here I am, still fighting. Because also, there is an American cultural understanding of Costa Rica as a tourist destination. They don't think about its people. They don't think about its history. And this is the first time that they've even thought about Costa Rican families and an American influence on their lives that is not at a resort or at a yoga retreat. So that has been its own battle.
0: Well, I'm glad that you're fighting as hard as you are, because this voice, this story is important. And I, for one, have loved learning everything that I did from your pages. Thanks so much. Uh, what advice do you have for new writers?
1: Oh man, new writers keep going. But have a strategy when you are querying agents. Look at your favorite novelists, turn to those acknowledgments and see who their agent is. And study that agent, see what they want. Buy uh, Before and After the Book Deal by Courtney Mom that is a transformative text for a writer's career. Courtney really did it for the culture. She did it for me. She did it for everybody. It is a fantastic book and it is very helpful. So keep going, believe in yourself. I'm on year 14 of this project. I started the first lines that are still in the book. They're still buried somewhere in that book when I was 18. And here we are 14 years later. So keep fighting. Keep believing in yourself, especially if you're a part of a marginalized group because your story matters.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you, and I look forward to staying in touch and reading a lot more in the future.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, New Hampshire.
0: You've been listening to Check This Out on NHPR. I'm your host, Rachel Baronbaum. My guest today was John Manuel Arias. We are talking about his debut novel, Where There Was Fire. This show is brought to you through a partnership between the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire and NHPR. Our producers today are Jared Jenish, Megan Coleman, and NHPR's Emily Quirk. The Howe Library director is Ruby Simon. NHPR's program director is Emily Quirk. The show is sponsored by the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation and the Howe Library Corporation. If you missed part of the show or you want to hear more, go to nhpr.org or thehow.org. Thank you for listening.